I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. And guess what? It's Black Friday. It's also time for the exclusive, much anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here, calling from Brisbane, Australia. I think you and I have been here together before. Uh, listen, man, they just arrested the world, uh, tongue twister champion. Uh, I heard he'll be given a tough sentence. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Good one. <laughs> All the way from down under Duff and Guns N' Roses in Australia, playing some stadiums. Fozzie will be joining them next week, not on the same stage, but we're going to be in Australia as well. Brisbane on November 30th, Melbourne on December 2nd, Sydney on December 3rd, and Adelaide on December 4th. Actually, Duff and I met in Australia and bonded over almonds, as you heard on previous Talk is Jericho's. Come see us uh, play. Tickets still available at fozzyrock.com. There's still some VIPs available in Adelaide, uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney all sold out, but tickets available still for all shows, although they're going fast. A great double bill with Buck Cherry. So come on down if you live down under and come rock with us. See you next week, Australia. And we'll see you in February on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager. See the Four Leaf Clover. Fozzie's going to be there. Quarantine is going to be there. We set sail February 2nd from Miami to our own private island in Great Stirrup K. The lineup on this ship is stacked. We are adding new guests, new talent every single week. We just added Nyla Rose, Vicky Guerrero, Ricky Starks, The Chaos Project, The Lucha Brothers, Phoenix and Penta, uh, Swerve Strickland, The Acclaimed, uh, Jade Cargill. The list goes on and on and on with more huge names to be announced next week. And, of course, we're going to have the inaugural crowning of the first ever Jericho Cruise Oceanic Champion. That's going to be on board as well as comedy, music, live podcast, paranormal Dave Schrader. So many cool things happening. As you know, it is the vacation of a lifetime. Don't miss out. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and find all information, including 0% down and 0% financing, which just started. You can come on the cruise. It's a perfect holiday gift. 
Book the cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. All right, today, this is interesting, off the beaten path, Molly Bloom is here. She wrote the New York Times bestselling memoir, Molly's Game, which was then turned into an Academy Award-nominated movie of the same name. It's a real-life true story. Molly's talking about this in great detail, how a devastating injury prevented her from competing as a mogul skier at the Winter Olympics and ended her career. She then wound up in the world of high-stakes poker, hosting and running very expensive poker games for A-list celebrities, politicians, investment bankers, and billionaires. This led to run-ins with the Italian mafia, Russian organized crime, and Molly's eventual arrest by the FBI. It's a riveting story. And if you haven't seen the movie Molly's Game, check it out. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Molly explains how she made that happen, what her Hollywood experience was like. She's also talking about her new podcast, Torched. Talks to athletes about their stories and specifically what they've had to give up or lose in the name of winning. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. Molly Bloom's story, straight from Molly herself, right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. So it always uh, intrigues me when I talk to somebody who has had a movie made about them. And uh, Molly Bloom, actually an Academy uh, Award nominated script for this movie about about you called Molly's Game. And just before we kind of get into the specifics as to, you know, all the reasons why you you had a movie made about you, because there's, there's plenty of them. Was it cool for you to see like this being made? And I know I think it was that Jessica Chastain was playing you. Like, how is that when someone's playing you? Yeah, it's a little meta, a little Inception-ish. <laughs> yeah, it's all Inception, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was equal parts thrilling, terrifying, one of those sort of like surreal experiences that you don't really ever truly unpack, I think. You just have to go with. Well, you also kind of like, I've written five books, like autobiographies about my life, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're putting it all on the printed page which is the same as a script or a movie, you're kind of bearing yourself and you have to, you have to let people see kind of, you yeah. know, the thoughts and the feelings and all that stuff you went through. But it's a little bit weird sometimes when people still come up to me and say things that I've written in a book. I was like, man, I forgot I wrote about that. Like that's pretty deep stuff. But obviously for you having it in a movie, like it's kind of one of those things where now every stranger that ever watches it knows the inner workings of, of Molly. Yeah, but they also assume that my inner dialogue is as brilliant as Aaron Sorkin's <laughs> dialogue. They're like, remember when you said, because it's my name? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't say that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> go with it, right? Sorkin dialogue, but yeah, no, I want to claim it, but you know, it's not the right thing. So I, I can relate to people coming up to you and quoting yeah. things that you wrote in this very soul-bearing moment. And being like, oh, yeah, I wrote that. And now we're going to have to have a conversation about it. <laughs> but I I think the more real you can get, the more you can connect with people on that sort of deep level. Well, because people can feel how if it's legit, right? And like you said, because it is your story, yeah. you want it told properly. And that includes, I'm sure, a lot of details and that sort of thing. And it was a very big Hollywood movie, too. Like, did you go to the premiere? Were you sitting in the crowd nervous? Uh, about how they would react and that sort of thing? Yeah, because I hadn't even seen the movie. The producers and Aaron said, you need to sit in a room by yourself and watch this movie before it premieres. And, and I'm like, no, man, I'm not going to live through that. So I'm just going to have to 
jump in like when everyone else sees it at this premiere in Toronto with my whole family and 2000 strangers. And yeah, those moments before that movie started, because I had no idea what to expect. I mean, I'd read the screenplay a year prior, but it's a whole different thing, you know? And the screenplay was based on a, on a book that you had written. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I had spent eight months working with Aaron on it because it was a new story. The events had just gone down like a couple years past. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a ton of it in the public medium. All he had was my book and me. Mm -hmm. And so I got this incredible opportunity to work with the master wordsmith, Aaron Sorkin, and, and spend time with him and observe his process and be part of his process. So that was just something that I didn't expect and was so cool. Well, it's such a fantastic story too, like as far as you know, all the stuff that you went through to get this on the printed page and to get it on film. Let's kind of start because I'm Canadian mm -hmm. and I have been skiing since I was eight years old. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you started was being a very skilled downhill skier and kind of tell me the story of, of how that started, which led you to becoming kind of this Hollywood mogul for, I don't know if they're illicit poker games, but high level poker <laughs> games. But how does a small town skiing girl end up in this situation because i'll tell you what so was what, what was your specialty uh, on the hill i was a mogul skier okay so moguls are insanely hard yeah moguls are insanely hard and insanely like painful <laughs> on your knees right yeah and on all of it and especially because i had that surgery when i was 12 years old i was diagnosed with really severe scoliosis oh wow they had to attempt to straighten my spinal cord and then in order to keep it from curving again, they had to fuse 11 of my vertebrae together and then put two metal rods down the whole thing. You know, like any reasonable human being, the doctors were like, you should, mobile skiing is over for you, you know? Mm. And my parents agreed with that. And, but I was just, I, I was so in love with it. I knew I had to try to get back on the mountain and, and in a competitive setting. And, and so that taught me a lot about the world. That taught me a lot about myself. And what we can do when we kind of like take that center of gravity within and, and stop listening to what everyone else thinks they know about you and what you're capable of and really just kind of dig deep into like what your own answer is. And so I had really low expectations for where it would go, but I worked really hard and, and then I made the U.S. ski team and skied for the U.S. development team and became ranked third overall in North America. You know, that year uh, made it to nationals which at the time that year it was a, an olympic qualifying event hmm. and so and i was at the top i was skiing better than i've ever skied and you know i was certainly not a favorite to like win the olympics or be on the olympic team but i had a shot and so then i started having this best run of my life and then freak accident skied over this little you know how they put pine bow on the course when the light's flat yeah skied over this little piece of pine bow it lodged itself in between my boot and binding ski pre-released off the bottom air and oh my gosh up, yeah i ended up uh crashing pretty hard and you know i was able to walk away from the accident i was injured but it, it wouldn't didn't necessarily mean that it would have been a career ending injury but I, I didn't have another four years in me it was already so difficult to compete with people Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the University of Colorado. I was finishing my undergrad, but I just needed some time. My heart was so broken. I never thought of myself as anything other than, you know, I was always a mogul skier. Sure. And so I went to LA because I just wanted to be warm. 
I just wanted to be in this time. Well, but before we go to LA, I want to ask you a question. Cause like I said, yeah. so I've had, I've done over 900 episodes of, of talk as Jericho and we've never discussed downhill skiing. I don't know if we'll ever discuss downhill mogul skiing again. So like I said, because I understand the concept of what you're doing. Yeah. Like all of us, when I was younger, Oh, double black diamond. Sure. Let's do the double black diamond. And you, it, it's stupid. It's stupid because it's so hard. Yeah. But when you're mogul skiing, what is the technique? Are you trying to find the way through the moguls as you're going and pick your path as you go? Cause that's the way I always try to do it. But of course I would always just bail and just tumble down the mountain anyways. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing about mogul skiing is kind of everything your body tells you to do instinctively is wrong. Oh. That's why so many people are like, I can't do the moguls. You really have to retrain your body how to deal with hitting inanimate objects at high speeds because the body wants to tense up, oh, you know, sort of resist. Yeah. And so you have to teach yourself to be really supple and anticipate the impact, you know, sort of preemptively anticipate it by becoming supple and then put force down the backside. Hmm. So, yeah. So you're looking for your path through. Another thing people want to do is look down. You have to keep your eyes up. You have to keep your vision up. Wow. You know, the best mogul skiers are almost poetic about it. They're moving like it's poetry. It's supple. It's like water. If you look at how water moves over rocks in a river, that's, oh, interesting. that's the concept. Yeah. You pick your path and you try to be supple and you try to be rhythmic and you try to be fast. And then there's two airs, two jumps. And they're doing crazy stuff now, like crazy oh, yeah. inverts and then landing in the bumps and stuff. And, you know, back then inverts were just starting to be a thing. So I didn't go inverted, but you know, you're jumping, you're getting a lot of air and then having to land and then negotiate the impact again at an even higher speed. So it's a crazy sport and it's a really crazy sport to do if your entire thoracic spine is immovable. <laughs> Uh, yeah, steel rods for sure. Yeah. So, so when you're going down, though, it's not just looking for the path between. You do also have to ride over them you do. as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Ab absorption and extension. So you absorb the impact and then extend down the backside. That's amazing. Like I said, like anybody that can actually – like if you ever watch the Olympics, anybody that's listening to this, you see the mogul guys and girls – and they keep their legs com almost completely straight. And they're just kind of going. And they're yeah. just kind of like, there's not even any motion. It's just kind of impact, impact, impact. impact. Like you, you're made of like a giant shock absor absorber or something like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, now that I know, I'll, not, th not that I'll ever go back on a double black diamond again. I'm fine <laughs> on the blues now. Yeah, but me too. if I ever do, <laughs> I'll know, I'll know kind of what the secret is. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, -ha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. So you mentioned that once you get out of the of, of skiing, you just want to go somewhere warm. You go down to LA. Yeah. Next stage of your life begins. Yeah, I know. The intention was always to take a year off and then go back and finish school and go to law school. I'd just taken the LSATs, and that was kind of what I wanted to do or what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I got to LA, and it was this incredible place where your life could change in an hour, and it was sunny every day. You know, just like nothing I'd ever seen. And I guess that's maybe what I needed to deal with the loss of, of bubble skiing. So I started out, I was a waitress, then I got a job as a personal assistant and my boss was really well connected. He hung out with a bunch of billionaires and celebrities and he had this, wanted to start a weekly poker game. Hmm. And he told me that he needed me to serve drinks at it. You know, I was like, okay, how hard can that be? But then the people that started showing up were, you know, not only A-list actors like DiCaprio and, and Affleck, but the head of the biggest investment bank in the world and a politician that is a household name and <laughs> tech giants and billionaires. I mean, people you, you see on CNBC or read about in newspapers. And for me, being a small town kid from Loveland, Colorado, in my early 20s, I was like, oh, you know, and I've always been an information junkie. Like I love, love learning about new things. And and I also love observing human beings. I'm the daughter of a psychologist. So maybe (laughs) I absorbed that from him, but this was fascinating because these people were really in a place where they're, they were relaxed. You know, their inner dialogue was, was very authentic and candid. And so I got to just observe and learn and, and also they were tipping me in chips and when people are using chips, as Vegas knows very well, it's kind of like funny money. So I was making like three to $5,000 for refilling drinks a night. But how do you mean funny money? I mean, it's not the same as if you're writing a check or if you are giving cash. The chips feel more casual, you know? Here's some, a, yeah, yeah. yeah, here's a $1,000 chip. I just won a $20,000 pot. Here's $1,000 for you, you know? like Interesting, right. It's It's a whole different economic system. You know, as as the weeks, months wore on, I, I learned about poker. But what I really saw was a way to build a business for myself that allowed me to have access to these very exciting people, to build a network, but to also save a bunch of money. I'm not going to lie. Like, I was very compelled with the whole sort of fringy, gray, exciting unconventional world because I had just lived this regimented conventional life of being a straight A student and being a professional athlete and everything was discipline and no hedonism and no pleasure. It was all constructive suffering and like up at seven to train and yeah. sitting by nine. And yeah. yeah. And here I was like in this place where it was just hedonism and adrenaline. And I guess I was primed for a rebellion, you know, so I found it really compelling. Let me ask you a couple questions. So this is that the, is that the Viper room? It was. Mm-hmm. So the Viper Room, like you know, I've been there before. Most of the time, it's a small place. You see bands there. So was this were these games taking place kind of in a hidden location or right in the middle yeah. of the Viper Room no. like downstairs? <laughs> it 
No, I was in the basement. Gotcha. In this like room downstairs where I think traditionally when Johnny Depp and those guys owned it, like some pretty yeah, salacious the, stuff yeah. that happened down there too, you know? So I just had this history. That was the place. Now, are these types of games, high stake poker games, illegal per se? Good question. Complicated answer. It's not illegal to play in these games. It is illegal to run these games and to profit from it. Okay. But for a long time, the actual felony that I got indicted on, the language was such that it really suggested that poker would not pertain to this felony because the language was, these are limited to games of chance. Blackjack, you know, you get the card dealt and you win or you lose. And poker, you know, uh, defense attorneys had always argued is a game of skill. If you look at the World Series, you see the same people up there. It's a skill game. There's luck involved, but it's largely a skill game. How is it classified a skill game, whereas blackjack is not? So you're playing against the other players. Oh, I see. Rather than against the dealer? Mm-hmm. And the dealer's just dealing random cards. But against other players, you're picking and choosing which cards you want to get a pair, a full house, or whatever. Them. Yeah, you're gotcha. playing them. You're playing their psychology. You're, you can, what a loophole. Right? Yeah. So for a long time, nobody was concerned about what I was doing. I had a, an attorney who said, like, look, you're in the gray area. Don't break the law when you're sort of breaking the law. Like, don't allow drugs in the games. Don't allow sex workers. Like, all this stuff, which was never the intention like i think part of what kept my game well attended by the people that i wanted it to be attended to is because it was it was safe it felt it didn't feel illegal you know it felt like you were in monaco before obviously we've talked about a lot about getting sentenced and all this stuff but we're still at the viper room you're downstairs and now you Mm -hmm. are like you said this this kind of i don't know if it's rebelliousness or this adventure appeals to you so what is the next step? Are you be- are you basically becoming the general manager of this game now rather than just serving drinks? Or how does it escalate? So my boss at the time was like, I'm not going to pay you. You're getting paid from the tips from the poker game and you're going to still work for me full time. Mm. I was like, that's unfair, but I'm loyal to a fault, honestly. So I just kept, I was like, okay, working like 80, 100 hours a week and then the poker game, you know? <laughs> But during this time, I'm like thinking about how I would do it differently if it were my game. Then he said, you're focused too much on the poker game. I'm taking that away from you. And I'm giving it to this other, I'm letting this other girl serve drinks and host it. And you're going to just come work full time at the office. And so I had to take a shot. So like the next week I organized this poker game. I placed it at a high end location. The basement at the Viper room was grungy. And I saw it as this experience where people could go and completely lose themselves and be a, it's all fantasy. So I wanted the players. Very to Hollywood. In, yeah. I wanted the players to walk in and feel like James Bond for a night, you know, <laughs> like you've got your Cuban cigars and your scotch and right. there's people here that have memorized your name and your drink order and you don't have to ask for anything. It's just there for you. And, you know, there's flowers and the lighting is perfect. You know, just all this, this whole like sensory experience. So I, I planned this game for the following week. I raised the stakes from ten to 50000 and and I invited everyone except for my boss. <laughs> Still at the Viper Room. No, no. This was like at the 
at a gorgeous house in Beverly Hills. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think a lot of them assumed that my boss would be there, but he wasn't. And then they kind of like found out what was going down and the game was so well pulled off that everyone was like, all right, we'll play here. And then my boss, like it was kind of this hilarious moment because my, my whole tenure working for him, he's like, you're too nice. You're just going to get eaten up in the world. And I would always be like, I'm so worried about your soul. Like you're such a bad person, you know? <laughs> and so he called me over at his house at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I was like, oh, he's actually going to kill me. I was terrified of this person. And I had to like sit and wait for him. And he comes in and he's just like glaring at me. And then he's like, I'm proud of you, player. He's like, you've graduated. You're like ruthless now. And I'm like, I don't want to be ruthless. You know, I want to still have a heart and a conscience. But what I did was ballsy. And I think like, and ever since then, we've been really good friends and, and uh, we're still really good friends. But like you said, you raised the stakes because you're talking about, this is not talking out of school because it's well-documented, DiCaprio. And you're talking about, like you mentioned, Leo, and you, there's uh, Matt Damon and Affleck and all these types of guys. So there is like the A-list guys yeah. and girls and whoever's are coming to your game. Yeah. And, and every week, like my game became the game to play in. And so by this point, now I'm keeping books on everyone. I'm guaranteeing the game so if someone stiffs it's partially on me and eventually completely on me if stiffs, stiffs meaning if someone doesn't pay yeah if someone doesn't pay gotcha i'm taking these exploratory trips and finding new players i'm doing deals with casino hosts to send me contacts like i am you know changing up the locations and coming up with new ideas and you know just really running a business i have employees and i'm making millions of dollars a year and <sighs> I have this incredible network and I'm learning about tech and finance and Hollywood and I'm investing and I'm getting into the art world. And like, it was rolling every year. My parents were like, when are you going to law school? I'm like next year. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll go next year. You're essentially the house then, correct? The yeah. So whoever's winning paid out, but the house always wins as we know, if you know anything about gambling. Yeah. And so that's where this revenue is coming from where everybody's, you know, putting money in the pot and the winner gets the pot and you get the residuals of that. So basically to keep myself safe from even safer from this felony, I was working only on tips. So I wouldn't take a percentage of the pot oh. like Vegas does. And so the winners, there's this unspoken rule. If you want your seat back next week, or if you want credit, you tip the host. Gotcha. And so, you know, people were winning and losing millions of dollars and, and the winners would tip. A healthy percentage of that. What's the biggest tip you ever got? Probably two fifty. <laughs> Not a bad tip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's grand, my friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so, so the tips are that big. Yeah. And listen, if you're winning millions of dollars, like you said at Molly's game, you want to come back. Well, that's just you better be taking. It's like taking care of your waiter or waitress at a, at a busy bar. You know, if you, you take care of them, they're going to make sure to give you the extra service right it's more like giving your banker a percentage oh i see i see i mean where else can you go with a check in your pocket and walk out with five million dollars and that's what people are winning at these games yeah and by the way sit next to your heroes sit next to people that you could go into business with or, or create a hedge fund with it's going to change your life be James Bond for a night too, like you said. Yeah, yeah. And, and feel like James Bond for a night. So now you're talking, your parents still want you to go to law school and probably not quite understand what exactly you've got going on. What's the next step in this elevation to to where it finally just went and 
where it blew up, everything blew up. <laughs> so I ran that game for six years in LA. Wow. And then I had a big problem. One of the most famous players, super powerful player, didn't like how much money I was making. He was obsessed with this game and he was keeping spreadsheets on everyone. And, and he was the big winner other than me. Hmm. And even though he's making 10x what he's winning in these games in movies, he just has this obs- obsession with it. And he's counting every dime and nickel. In the beginning, he rented for $200 a night his shuffle master to us instead of just letting us use it. Like he wanted to make that $200 a night just to give you some context, like some insight into how this guy's mind works. Okay, gotcha. And so he's like, by my math, you're you're making this much a year. And I'm like, yeah, but I've found all these players. I'm bringing in all these players. I'm allowing yeah. you to, and I'm guaranteeing the game and creating, facilitating this. And also, players can tip whatever they want. This is up to them. Anyway, he got more and more upset about it and basically wanted me to cap what I was making or maybe even give him a percentage. Wow. I knew that he was serious about this. But I was serious about not how like undignified and unjust that was. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't do it. And so he ended up going behind my back and taking the game. How was he able to take the game if, if everybody likes you? Because he's the celebrity in the room. Uh, he's got the power. He's got the power. What a lesson learned about the Hollywood system for you, even on that aspect. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I still don't regret that I didn't acquiesce to that bullshit. Right. Of course. So this would have been a great time to like, I'd saved a bunch of money. I could have gone back to law school or started another business or whatever, but I just was so pissed and I had something to prove, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, F them. I'm going to go to New York city. I'm going to build the (laughs) biggest poker game in the world just to show that like, that it's on my terms. You know, you're young, you're full of fire. But I can understand that too, though. Like you said, it's the, I'm not saying you're addicted to it, but there is a thrill. There's a thrill there in being involved in this and creating this entire world, like you said, to have somebody take that from you. I'd be pissed off as well. Yeah. And you want to prove it to yourself almost as much as to everyone else that like you can't be pushed around, you know, that you're not powerless. The worst feeling in the world to be powerless. Sure. Right. Right. Have something taken from you that you did not want. And you just have to like lay down and accept it. I needed to do this. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Before we go to New York, before we, I feel like we're, you know, in a video game, before we go to New York, so, so what, what's the tax situation from all this money that you're making? I'm paying my taxes. What are you claiming? A gaming license or? Nope. An event planning company. Event planning So company. I'm producing these events. Gotcha. And I'm compensated. I'm tipped for putting on the event. So you're completely doing everything by the book. If there's a book. If there's a book. <laughs> I sort of had to invent the book, but I'm walking a fine line. Gotcha. Okay. So you're walking a fine line, but you're doing it very smartly. I am trying to be intelligent. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So now it's New York City. New York City. We're getting out of LA. We're going to show this guy, teach these people a lesson about what Molly's all about. And there was this game that I'd always heard about 
that had been going on for a lot of years, I heard that it was a $250,000 buy-in, which is five times bigger than my LA game. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was like, okay, so there's opportunity in New York to do this. But it was like this very hush, hush, high-end masters of the universe on Wall Street, you know? So I had to get to them to see if they would come play in, in a game that I would throw. And then also I was like, and I'm not ever going to put all my eggs in one basket. Like I'm going to, I'm going to build an empire and then I'm going to go away and maybe have a family and get another job or, but uh, you know, before I do that, I'm going to go as big as I can possibly go. So I got to these guys somehow convinced them to let me run a game for them. I built out the high stakes, the mid stakes, the low stakes, the the variations of Texas Hold'em and kind of like went into this scene knowing no one in New York City and dominated. And there were these guys, these these game runners that were pissed off because they had been running New York City poker forever. Wow. <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure, who's this chick coming in here? <laughs> yeah. This California chick. Yeah. By the way, even worse than that, small town Colorado chick. Right. You know? <laughs> Is this something, and you might be getting to this, I mean, I could just be stereotyping because it's New York, but is there a little bit more of a mafia connection there or like connected type of a people that- Oh, we're going there. Oh, we're going there. Gotcha. Okay. I'll sit back. I won't backseat story anymore. No, no, no. Backseat story because I'll forget. It's good. So yeah, I mean, you go to New York City and obviously if you're muscling into territory, like you mentioned, you're walking the line between what's legit and what's not. Yeah. It would seem that there would be other people that would not want you in there encroaching on their territory. Nobody wanted me. There. Right, right. Except for the players, because what I provided for them was a really high-end, cool experience. It was also so safe and secure. Like My company was called MDB Inc., and you could take an MDB Inc. check to any game in the <sighs> city, and it played as well as cash. Gotcha. Because everybody knew that I ran this like very honest game, and a lot of people would go play in these games, they'd risk a lot of money and then they wouldn't get paid unless the game runner got paid. It was kind of a Ponzi. Okay, gotcha. So I start running these games. I start doing incredibly well. These games are humongous. These games, people win and lose just crazy numbers, like $100 million in one night. Jeez. Which, by the way, is multiple, multiple, multiple times bigger than your LA game. Not the same universe. Not even close, yeah. Hundreds of millions a night. So this is billionaires. Billionaires. This is a billionaire's game. Right. And this is a billionaire's game of people who lose this much in the market, are comfortable with the swings. It's it's insane. And so then I I run into some real big problems. And I would classify it as the Russian mob, the Italian mob, and Molly Bloom. Oh my <laughs> Those are my three problems. Okay. <laughs> so a couple guys start playing in the game. They're these Russian-American businessmen, super sophisticated. They have an air of Ivy League. But turns out they're running the biggest insurance fraud scheme in New York City history. And they're playing in these games. And the feds are listening to their phone. So they start to hear about this $100 million poker game where all this cash is changing hands. So now they're really interested. So they're listening. The second thing that happened was I got approached by, they claimed to be Italian organized crime. They basically said that I needed to either give them a piece and or partner with them. And I turned them down. And so in this terrifying, like surreal night, they sent this guy to my apartment and he put a gun in my mouth and he beat me up. And he took everything that was in my safe. And he told me that if I told anyone, he knows where my family lives and that, and that I'd hear from them. Oh my gosh. 
So man, it's just gotten incredibly dark and incredibly dangerous. And now I'm not only putting my own life in jeopardy, I'm putting the life of my family in jeopardy. For the first time, probably in my life, I have no idea what to do, you know, because I can't turn them down, but I can't say yes. Like, you know, a couple of weeks went by, I didn't hear from them. And I, I had no idea why I wasn't hearing from them. And then I get the New York Times. And in 2010, there was the biggest mob-related takedown in New York City history. And I guess they got swept up in that because I never heard from them again. So but when, when, last... when, 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 before you go to the last thing, before, when he's at your house with a gun in your mouth yeah. and don't say anything, or basically they're saying, get out of this game or else. No, basically they're saying, you will give us a piece. We will go into business together. Oh, we don't want you out. No, no, no. I we was, want a piece of it. I was a huge moneymaker. Gotcha. I understand. Okay. Okay. You know, here I am, this like little petite girl from Loveland, Colorado, making $6 million a year off this game. Right. Of course, they're going to try to infiltrate. What kind of a piece would you have to give them? Who knows? Probably eventually all of it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that would have gone. I'm, I'm so, the, so the third thing. The third thing and the thing that probably really took took me out was me. I, for so many years, had been able to kind of keep myself on the outside of this, meaning that like I kept my core values in place. I ran an intelligent game. I didn't get swept up. I didn't, you know, do the drugs and, and drink to excess. And, and I started getting caught up and I started getting so, I started getting greedy and it was never enough. And I started making choices that really were so different than choices I had made in the past because I was raised by a mom who like just was so much about kindness and integrity and doing the right thing, you know, doing no harm. So forever, I, you know, for a long time running these games, like I'd really cared about the players and didn't let people in that I thought would get really hurt. And I just stopped doing that. And it, I just, it was all about me. And like, it was all about how much money can I make and how much more power can I have? And, and I really lost it. I lost myself, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I started drinking a lot and taking pills to stay up. And so found myself like really addicted to substances. Mm. And so I found myself, I didn't go away after that whole mob thing. Like I just kept running games mm-hmm. and then decided S it. I'm going to take a rake because I've got a lot of exposure here and I've gotten a little sloppy and I've got this big accruing debt sheet. And so in some of these games, you know, everyone else in New York takes a rake. So I'm going to do it. And what does that mean? Taking a rake? Does that mean taking a piece off the top? Yeah. A percentage which was kind of what was keeping me out of that muck of the felony. Gotcha. Gotcha. And the feds had put a confidential informant in the game. Oh my gosh. And he tracked that. And so in 2011, one of my games got raided. I wasn't there. I got tipped off, but I knew that that meant it was game over. And I just got really, for the first time, like finally I got scared Mm -hmm. and I was just like, I want to go home and be with my parents. Like I need their level heads to help me navigate this so i just that night i tried to buy a plane ticket to denver and my credit card got declined and then my debit card got declined and i logged into my accounts and i saw that my account balance was negative nine million dollars the feds had taken everything at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. 
It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. You know, this whole thing is so unbelievable. Talking with you, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, just hearing you tell these stories, it's something from a movie, which is why they made a movie about your life, you know? (laughs) Wow. So they have that power that quickly, just go in and take it all away. It's called asset forfeiture. So in in the U.S., your personhood has a presumption of innocence, meaning they have to prove you're guilty to put you in jail and to put your property does not. Gotcha. So we called the the offices that be, you know, the DOJ or the, I can't remember. I don't know who my, exactly my attorney called, but he called and did that, that recon. And they're like, we're taking her money. We think she made it illegally. If she wants to sue us for it, go on record, tell us how she made it. Wow. You know, she has that right, but she's not the target of our investigation right now. And my lawyer said, if you want her to come in, let us know, you know, we'll, we'll come in. So I went away. I moved in with my mom and my grandmother at 9,000 feet in Colorado. It was cold and silent and depressing and everything was gone. I didn't even have a bank account, let alone any money. Most of the friends were gone. You know, it was this whole reckoning. Sure. I spent the next two years trying to put my life back together, trying to get a job. And about two years later, in the middle of the night, I got arrested by 17 FBI agents with machine guns and high beam flashlights. And they put this piece of paper in front of me that said the United States of America versus Molly Bloom. I was in a very public, very serious RICO indictment. And what is a RICO indictment? I don't really know still to this day, but basically, (laughs) basically they decided that what you had been doing was illegal. And now you are arrested. I'm in an indictment with really serious criminals, yeah. really serious Russian organized crime criminals. And I don't know any of them. I don't know most of them. I, I know the gambling people, right? but I don't know the rest of them. You know, I had a day and a half to get to New York City to find an attorney that's going to represent me in the fight of my life because I'm looking at serious time. And uh, I start working with this guy, Jim Walden, who was played by Idris Elba in the movie. And Jim Walden is just a true crusader for justice and so compassionate and he took on my case and I didn't have any money. He was like, I'll figure out the money later. Right. We start working together. The prosecutors want me to flip and become a confidential informant and get them information on the, they don't care about the mobsters. They want information on the politicians and the celebrities and the billionaires. They, you know, if I'm willing to do that, they'll give me my money back and they'll keep me out of jail. Wow. But if I'm not, they said the amount of money I made really warrants prison time Mm. so i kind of have to make this really tough decision and and i decide that these are things that i did knowingly that i'm in this place and it's my fault and listen if there were people like harvey weinstein or epstein in my game and they wanted information on that man that would have been my honor (laughs) to take people like that down yeah but these people what were they doing betting on sports yeah right (laughs) playing poker i'm sorry like i'm not destroying people's lives to get out of my own trouble when they're doing things that the government legalized two years later. Right. You know what I mean? Like you can get on your phone in New Jersey right now and every moment's a bettable moment. Anyway, so I decide not to take the deal. I get sentenced. I have a really, really great, cool judge, 41 years old, Obama appointed. And he was like, very disappointed in my life choices. Like didn't, wasn't into 
what I had done with my life, but basically didn't put me in jail. It's impossible to describe when you're someone who has never wanted to be powerless when, when you're anyone. Okay. But in particular, like freedom has been your thing and powerlessness has been the thing that you fought your whole life to, to think about losing that for an extended period of time. Like when they said that I didn't have to go to jail, I lost my knees. I was so relieved, mm-hmm. but then you get over that and you're like, or I'm like, I'm 35 years old. I'm millions of dollars in debt. Minus 9 million. <laughs> right? right. And you said convicted. Convicted felon. Wow. Social pariah. No one wants to talk to me, you know, and addicted to drugs and alcohol. Like this is rock bottom. And so I dealt with all those things. I got sober. Then I, I said, okay, like, what's the way out here? I have these two like really overachieving brothers. Uh, my youngest brother is a two-time Olympian, played in the NFL as well. So a two-time skiing Olympian, played in the NFL, started a charity granting wishes for senior citizens in our community. He was an Abercrombie model and I, he just co-founded and sold a software company. Jeez. So that's my, Show that's off. my little brother. <laughs> right. Right. And then my middle brother is a Harvard educated cardiothoracic surgeon who's like the most decent human being in the world. And he's saving like little kids with congenital heart defects. So it was not an option to, to just stay living with my mom and grandma and not get a job. (laughs) I I couldn't stay in this place. I needed to do something radical. But when I looked at it, I was like, there's not much left here of the business or my life or whatever, but there's the story, you know? And I think as human beings, our stories can be so powerful. And that was, that's what I bet on. And so I wrote the book and then I took it to Hollywood. I met with so many talented people, but they were like, we can't make this movie. There's so many billionaires and politicians and, and A-list Hollywood people that don't want this movie to be made. And I'm like, well, this is my only idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I don't have any other ideas. I got really strategic. And I was like, there's a short list of people in Hollywood the Shonda Rhimes, the Spielbergs, the Aaron Sorkins that don't have to play politics that can get controversial. And if I can get one of these people interested in this project, then maybe it'll get made. And so at the top of that list for me was Aaron Sorkin. I love a few good men in the West Wing and social network and Moneyball. Like he's just my jam. (laughs) And so I just was like, I need a meeting with Aaron Sorkin. I think he'd be great with this material. It was really impossibly hard to get that meeting. The tabloids were telling the story like in this very sort of cheesy, low-hanging fruit way. Tabloid way, yeah. Right. And I, I said, I think that there's a, a better story here. And finally, I was so persistent. I got a meeting with Aaron Sorkin. Someone asked him for a personal favor. And he showed up graciously and he met with me. And I told him my story. I'll never forget what he said. It was hilarious because I went into that meeting and I was so nervous, but like, I had everything riding on it. So I I just put that game face on and I just pretended like I wasn't, I put, I like created the like vibe that I wasn't living with my mom and my grandma (laughs) in Colorado. And I was just like, you know, feigned that confidence. And when I was done, he was like, I'll tell you one thing. I've never met someone so down on their luck and so full of themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Great line. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's just such a genius with the lines and, and he ended up making the movie and, the movie got nominated for every award that there was. And I got the opportunity to 
travel around the world, the whole world, Africa, the Middle East, Australia, like everywhere talking, you know, sort of like imparting a message of we're human beings. We err. It's the most human thing there is to make a mistake and that there is hope for you. There's a, there's a second life. There's a reinvention. And I get to be on cool podcasts like yours. (laughs) At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let me ask you this, Molly. Yeah. When you were trying to sell that, because right now, obviously, and maybe it was the movie and the book that, that, I don't, uh, that named all these names. Mm-hmm. What, did anybody help you at all? Like, did you say, hey, man, you played these game. I need some help. Was there any, because you mentioned you were a social pariah. Did everybody just cut you out and now we don't know you anymore? Did anybody kind of give you a favor? You know, my former boss helped me a little bit. And another friend of mine named Andy helped me. And when I say helped me, like they stayed in my life. And, yeah. you know, my former boss like helped me a little financially, but most people didn't. And the truth is, is I didn't ask because I really got really clear on like, there are two things I did that really, I think, helped me move forward. One was own it all, all of it. And two was forgive myself for it. Gotcha. But in doing those two things, like owning it all, I was like, this isn't anyone's problem. This is my problem to solve. These people were super generous to me and super kind and like played in my games and made me all this money. And it's not their responsibility. And it's also, I didn't just not become a CI for them. I decided to not become a CI for myself too, because I needed to just like, you need to believe in yourself. Yeah. If you're going to fight for yourself and and we all have to in this life, you know? Hey, do you watch Better Call Saul by any chance? No, but I've heard it's amazing. So, so the end of Better Call Saul is very similar to what you just said. He had a chance to get a, a lesser sentence by yeah. cutting some corners but realized that he had done these crimes and he was responsible for atoning. And if he was ever going to be a real person again, he takes the fall. And that's exactly what you did, Yeah, which is very admirable. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that. Yeah. I guess you never know what you'll do until you're in this situation, Mm -hmm. but I've always like had a lot of pride for better or worse. And it just didn't feel right. As we start to wind down here and you mentioned you got to travel the world and kind of tell your story and, and you basically mentioned that it's we're all human beings and we make mistakes. Do you feel that this helped some people, your story, helped them with some of the mistakes they might have made? You know, I get a lot of messages on social media. I always stay after and talk to the people in the audience and stuff. And I've had a lot of people tell me that hearing this story or, or the movie changed their trajectory enabled them to forgive themselves or enabled them to fight for their life or enabled them to see that there's, there's a way out, whether that's through substance abuse, whether that's through losing all their money or getting in trouble. I think something that I found really valuable when I was in, in those dark times is reading about people or hearing people's stories that had made it through, Mm -hmm. that had made it out. Like if they can do it, I can do it. It's a different perspective. It pulls you out of that muck. And so yeah, I've gotten incredible messages and, and incredible feedback that 
it has changed some lives or at least changed some minds. Well, I think too, it also proves the old adage, you know, it's too good to be true. It probably is. And even, oh, totally. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dad used to always tell me every place of refuge has its price smaller. And, and I get it. Those shortcuts, you got to pay for them. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to pay for them, okay. But if you're not, don't do the crime. <laughs> you know? So how, how did you get out of the, the $9 million debt? Did they wipe that free when your sentence was given or? Well, that's not necessarily a debt. So what they do is they, they shut you down financially. So they, they just take your money. Mm-hmm. And so you can't like deposit into your accounts and, and start up your business again. So I, I probably owed $3 million. Wow. And I'm still paying it. I mean, I've made a big dent in it, but that's a culmination of combination of legal bills, restitution, back taxes for the IRS, because in 2011, when they took all my money, I couldn't pay my taxes that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've paid more than half of it off, and I'll keep paying it off. Someday I'll be free of it. That's the thing, too. Like People might think, and maybe it's different, but I know for the most part, when you sell a story or sell an idea or sell a book, yeah. you're not making, a, here's $5 million. You know, it's no. not, It doesn't work that way at all. So just because the Molly's game was made, it doesn't mean that you're footloose and fancy free out of all debt. No, I, in fact, like I had to hardcore negotiate to get any kind of real money. Like if you have a bestseller, like if you wrote Harry Potter, right. you're going to get a lot of money for the movie. But if you wrote a little unknown book that, you know, maybe sold 30,000 copies, like, or even less at that time, they're going to try to lowball you all day long. Luckily, I just was fearless and I had, I wasn't doing it for fame or it was doing it to save my life. So, you know, there are producers that, Aaron worked with that were like trying to lowball me. And I was like, no, I'm not, not even entertaining. That's not even in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I would walk away from these deals and everyone's like, you're going to lose Aaron or you're going to lose the deal. And I'm like, I don't think I will. <laughs> they didn't know who they were dealing with after uh, turning down the Italian mob or whatever, the Italian organized crime. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, but there's also this thing is like, when you lose everything, you're so fearless, right? You're completely liberated from ego and, and from fear and like, it's in some ways it's a very powerful place to be because then when you start getting the things back and you're afraid of losing them, then it's less powerful. So I always try to like, when I'm doing a business deal or when I'm negotiating, I try to tap into that survival mode energy Mm -hmm. where you're just like nothing to lose. When you get nothing to lose, that's when you get the most gains for sure. Yeah. Cause you don't have that fear. No, exactly. You got nothing to lose. Like you mentioned. Yeah. Last two questions. It looks, um, I, you, I'm sure you're doing quite a few things now, but one of them, you also talk about cool podcasts. You have one called Torched. Yeah. Uh, what kind of inspired you to do that? And what's kind of the concept of the show? Yeah, Torched is awesome. It's um, I'm doing it with Film Nation and Stitcher and Sirius. I'm Stitcher Sirius too, represent. Yay, Stitcher Sirius. They're great to work with, for sure. Yeah. The concept is Torched. And the first season was Olympic controversies and scandals. And so I got to talk to people like Greg Luganis and, you know, the, the 68 basketball game, which is the biggest upset in basketball history. And, and so you get to explore these stories of what happens when the human condition meets extreme human ambition. Mm. And I think it's fascinating. Um, and the second season has been sort of the same concept, scandals, controversies, big moments, but we've expanded outside of just the Olympic realm. So I just did a podcast with Lance Armstrong. I think it's fascinating to talk to people who have been through, you know, in Lance's case, one of the biggest 
takedowns in human history. Right. <laughs> and talk about like how he lived through that and how he continues to reinvent himself and what comes from that. Or Lou Gaines, who like did that dive into the water and he had the secret that he was HIV positive. And at that time we thought blood in the water would infect everyone and he kept it a secret. And he also kept the fact that he was gay a secret until finally he couldn't keep it a secret anymore. He came out thinking that it was going to end his life and it really restarted his life. You know, I think these things are super fascinating. I love sports. I like true crime and, and I like going deep with people in a non-judgmental way and looking at the nuances of what it means to be a human being. I'm really into it, you know? Well, and you've been there too. You, you understand. I've been there. Right? Last question for you. Okay, so you had a lot of really kind of bad things happen, but as a result of this, what's the coolest story? Like somebody that you met that enjoyed your movie or enjoyed your book. I'm sure you've done talk shows. Somebody must've come up to you and said, Hey, you're awesome. Man, when that movie came out, so many people, I mean, Spielberg loved the movie. And like, I went to all these premieres and had all these incredible people talk to me about it and from all walks of life. But I think the coolest part is not necessarily like what other people think about it. I think the coolest part is what you prove to yourself when you walk through something like that and you take it on head on and you face your demons and you take responsibility and then you reinvent yourself and you go even bigger. I think what that does for a human being inside to know that essentially like you are unbreakable is something I wouldn't trade for anything. It's an amazing story. I'm enthralled. It was an excellent, excellent chat. <laughs> Thank you so much, Molly. I can't wait to read your book. Uh, there's a few of them. Nothing as crazy as yours, but there's a couple. There's a couple in there. Okay. I'm going to check them out. And <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. I love I love memoir. Oh, thank you. Especially when you met the person. Well, that's the best part. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have a yeah, little bit more exactly. of an inside thought. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Molly. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure.